this morning. Um, I'm going to be looking at a passage that I refer to a lot. This is probably one of my favorite passages, uh, especially when I'm talking about the human condition in all of Scripture. Um, This is one of those passages that I refer to when I'm talking about Peter. Uh, Peter, the guy who likes to eat his shoe all the time. Um, his, His very typical human approach to interacting with God. And this, of course, is the... Uh, passage that starts in verse 13. Now, I will admit, I got a little bit sure of myself when I was starting my study time for this sermon. And I put down, we were going to start in verse 13, and we were going to make it all the way to verse 23. And then by the time I hit a page and a half of notes... And I was only on verse 17, I decided to stop. Because I didn't figure y'all wanted to order pizza for lunch and stay here for the whole day. So, this is going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this whole passage. Um, We are going to do from verse 13 to verse 17 today, because this is a very important uh, statement of faith. It's called the Caesarea Philippi Confession, and... um, there's, there's a lot of really, really good, good information in here. So I'm going to ask you all to stand with me as we read this morning's passage. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we read and reflect on this passage today, give us the faith that Peter had when he made this confession. Give us the wisdom to understand the depth of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us to be changed by what we read today. Through Christ. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. So, like I said, even though I talk about this passage a lot, uh, has anybody noticed me talk about this passage before? Once or twice, right? Okay. Um, We've never really gone in depth on it, of course, because we just hit it here in the the course of our verse-by-verse look at the book of Matthew. But um, as I try to do every time we look at a passage, especially uh, when the the gears kind of shift into a new direction, the first thing I want to do is look at the context of where it fits in the greater picture of Scripture, where it fits in the narrative that we've already been looking at, and where it fits in redemptive history. So, um, last week, as we we finished up in verse 12, um, our main focus was on the group from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who asked Jesus for a sign, not because they really wanted one, but because they wanted to assert their control over this prophet, because they were looking for a way to trap Jesus. 
as usual. And then after Jesus and the disciples left and they crossed back over the Sea of Galilee, um, he told the disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at which point they got sidetracked and started talking about bread. So Jesus had to kind of redirect them back to, hey, we're not talking about bread here, we're talking about the pervasive teaching of these two groups. But there appears to be a time gap between verse 12 and verse 13. I say that because at the end of chapter 15, Matthew says that after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Magadan is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 4 of chapter 16, after they asked for a sign, Jesus uh, left them and departed. Verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side. So if we were on the western side, now we're back on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And then here in verse 13, Matthew says Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was 25 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. So there had to be some kind of time passage there that Matthew's not telling us about. Remember, Matthew isn't really concerned with a day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of Jesus' life. Instead, he gives us the big-picture stories that have an impact as to the identity of Jesus as the Christ. That's Matthew's theme, is Jesus as the Christ. So, Jesus comes to this area approximately 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it's not a bad idea for us to know something about Caesarea Philippi. It has a very long history. Uh, Geographically, it's located at the foot of Mount Hermon, It was the home to a spring, some natural grottoes, and eventually, during the period of the ruling of the Greeks, it became a shrine to the Greek god Pan, who was associated with nature, fertility, fertility, futility, um, shepherds, and flocks. Any of you ever heard of Pan? Okay, yes, he is the one that Peter Pan is based on. Ah, yes, how about that? Um, During that time frame, the city was known as Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S. The spring that is there is one of the primary sources of water for the Jordan River. So it's an important city because, you know, when, when a spring bubbles out of the ground, it's normally not a huge river, right? It's a spring bubbling out of the ground. That water pools up and collects and then flows until it becomes a huge river like the Jordan River. What would happen if you were to stop up that spring? Well, and the Jordan River would have stopped, right? So strategically, economically, it's an important town. Uh, Natural springs have a lot of healing properties. Perhaps this is why they worshipped the Greek god Pan at this location. Because the healing properties, the restorative properties of the spring, the, uh, the, the natural grottos where there was mineral water and stuff would lead them to believe that there were enhanced um, visitations by this minor deity. I don't know. Um, in 20 BC, the region 
containing this city was annexed to a person we've talked about before. His name was Herod the Great, and he was the ruler of Palestine when something rather important happened in or around 3 to 4 B.C. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? The birth of Christ. Yeah, I know B.C., it doesn't make sense that he was born in the B.C. period, but he was because the monk who created the calendar that we go by today couldn't count right. Um, and that's really what it boils down to. Uh, one, one A.D. does not actually happen the first year after Jesus' birth. Um, but Herod the Great was the ruler of Palestine when Jesus was born. He was the homicidal maniac who declared uh, a, a uh, infanticide at that point in the region around Bethlehem of all of the young males that were under the age of two. He was the one who thought that his sons and daughters and wives were out to take his position on the throne, and so he had some of them executed. In other words, he was not quite right in the head. Herod built a huge marble temple in this city when he was in, in, the, in the leadership position, in the kingship position over Palestine. Upon his death, one of his sons that we've spoken of before, not that long ago as a matter of fact, his name was Philip the Tetrarch. Anybody remember Philip the Tetrarch? Anybody remember what his wife's name was? Herodias, who was adulterously engaged with his half-brother, Herod, right, who had John the Baptist executed. So Philip the Tetrarch ruled that part of the territory after his father's death, and he founded his capital city at this location. And he named the city Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus in the year 14 A.D., Something very important that happened to the Roman Empire in 14 AD was the death of Caesar Augustus. So, since he named it Caesarea, that caused a little bit of consternation because there was already a Caesarea located on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. So, how many of you all have been to Philadelphia before? I didn't clarify which one. Right? How many of you have been to Philadelphia before? Which one? Because there's two of them. That causes a great deal of confusion, and they're a pretty good distance apart. Philadelphia, Mississippi, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And some of our family members have been to both. <laughs> That's where the kids did some mission work here a couple years ago. So you got two towns with the same name. Hey, I'm going to Caesarea. Which one? Well, I'm going to the one by the sea. So they started calling that Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime. Caesarea by the sea. Because it was by the sea. The Caesarea that was founded by Philip the Tetrarch became known as Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea of Philip. Since he was the ruler there at that time. Uh, at that point, they were still worshiping the Greek god Pan. They were worshiping the Canaanite god, Baal. And, because they were good Roman citizens, they were worshiping Caesar Augustus. And this is the region that Jesus went to in this passage. 
It's a pagan city. It is a Gentile city. This is not Jewish territory. This is another one of those cases where Jesus has left Jewish territory, Israelite territory, and has gone someplace outside of the norm. And it's here that Jesus asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, first, pay attention. He doesn't say, who do the people say that I am? He asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He, he actually gives the answer away in the question. As a, as a professional educator, when we write tests, that's one of the things they warn us not to do, is to include the answer in the question, right? That, that's a no-no. Well, Jesus did it. He gave them one of the answers that would have been okay. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man, that is a name that in the Gospels, Jesus uses more times than any other name to refer to himself. That is his favorite way of referring to himself. And that name has some very strong ties to Messianic prophecy, specifically in the book of Daniel where the, the main imagery comes from. When Daniel sees a vision, and he said he saw the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, and one coming like a son of man, who took the scroll and opened the scroll, and so on and so forth. See, the son of man has nothing to do with Jesus' humanity, and has everything to do with his identity as Messiah. And so Jesus asks this popular poll. And look at the answers that the disciples give. Jesus wants to know what people are saying about him, what they think about his identity, and some people are saying that he's John the Baptist. Now, this is not the 21st century that we're talking about. This is the first century that we're talking about. So you have to remember that they don't live in a world that has Twitter and Facebook and Fox News and MSNBC and CNN and, and instant messaging and, and trustworthy and not-so-trustworthy news sources. They don't have telephones. Everything that is spread news-wise is spread by word of mouth. Information looked a lot like the game of telephone. You remember that game in school where you were learning about how hard it is to transmit information from one person to the next? You all sit in a ring around the room, the teacher says something in the ear of this person, and you have to tell the person next to you around the room by the time it gets to the, the last person in the chain, it doesn't look anything like the first person's message. Okay, that's the world that they live in. So the disciples say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Herod thought that he was John the Baptist, and Herod was the, Herod was the one that had John killed. So it shouldn't surprise us that there were people who thought that he was John the Baptist, either back from the dead or that the stories of John's death maybe weren't real. So they had fake news even back then. Um, it would be very easy, if you look at the life of Jesus at this point and the life of John the Baptist, 
John shows up after a period of about 400 years of silence, prophetic silence from God. There had been no voice of God in Israel for 400 years. And all of a sudden, John shows up on the scene, long hair, long beard, honey stuck in the beard, probably bits of cricket legs and stuff like that because that's what he ate. Yummy. Honey-covered crickets. He's wearing a camel hair tunic. He's got a rope tied around his waist for a belt. And he comes out and he proclaims, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Might as well have come out with a big neon sign over his head. Prophet! And when Jesus shows up on the scene, what is he preaching? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus goes up to Galilee and starts doing what? Baptizing people. It's kind of easy to understand how some people could think that Jesus and John the Baptist, same person. They're wrong, but it's easy enough to understand. Others said that Jesus might be Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Who was Elijah? Anybody? He was a prophet. Okay. That was the easy answer. What's he known for? Oh, hey, look. Somebody's read the Old Testament. The widow in Zarephath. During the famine in Israel because of King Ahab. Elijah goes to Zarephath, to the home of the widow. And she's about to mix up the last batch of bread so that she and her son will die. And he makes a deal with her. If you feed me the bread, I'll make sure that you don't starve to death. And they don't. But then the son passes away. And Elijah raises the son back to life. Right? Elijah, who was known for performing miracles, like the oil that didn't run out, right? I mean, he was known for doing big stuff. This was the guy who confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember that little thing, right? He's, he, he poked the bear, if you will. As the prophets are dancing around their altar and they're, they're cutting themselves, and he's the one sitting on the sideline. Hey, yell louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. The prophets had a sense of humor. Elijah had a sense of humor. Maybe he stepped out to go to the bathroom. Then finally, when they were all exhausted and all the prophets of Baal are laying on the ground and nothing has happened, he calls for a servant. Hey, bring me a bucket of water. Pour it on my altar. Now another one and another one and another one. Until his altar looked like our ditch out here alongside right now. (laughs) And then he looks to heaven and he prays. And fire falls and consumes the sacrifice, the altar, the stones, the water, the ground. Why would people think that Jesus is Elijah? Oh, I don't know. Because he took five barley muffins and fed 5,000 people with them? Because at the touch of his hand, he healed the leper and cleansed him completely? Because he looked at a man who was lame from birth and he said, your sins are forgiven. 
take up your bed and walk. And the guy did because he raised people from the dead, Jairus' daughter. He called the people and the leadership of Israel to repent and turn away from their idolatry. Elijah did that. Remember his conversation with Ahab? Ahab, you're terrible. You married Jezebel and she's led the people into idolatry. Stop. No, I'm the king. I'm going to do what I want. Okay, then there's not going to be any rain for three years. Have a nice day. Jesus did that. I can understand why people think this way, that he was possibly Elijah. Now, they're not thinking that he was Elijah reincarnated. That wasn't part of Jewish understanding of life and death. But they honestly thought that maybe he was Elijah back from the dead. In fact, during Elijah's lifetime, there were Jews that thought he was the Messiah. Because of the way some of the prophecies read. And the fact of the matter is, he was a Messiah. Jeremiah is listed. The weeping prophet. Jeremiah was a young prophet. Probably in his mid to late 20s when he received his call to ministry. Jesus was barely 30. That was Jeremiah's argument when God called him. I'm, I'm but a child, man. I'm a kid. I don't know what I'm talking about. I can't go up there and... Sounds a lot like Moses. Yeah. Jeremiah was a preaching prophet. He went throughout Israel preaching. He condemned idolatry. He condemned the greed of the priesthood. And the false prophets that had permeated the nation of Israel. Again, sounds a lot like Jesus. It's really easy to understand why these names percolate to the top of the list by the disciples. Now, I, I, I don't know if Matthew did this or if the disciples actually did this. But over the course of what we have looked at in the Gospel of Matthew, there are some other identities that Jesus has been labeled with that the disciples aren't recorded as giving here. He's been accused of being demonically possessed. He's been accused of being in league with Satan. And some have referred to him as being Satan himself. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Not here. And like I said, I don't know if that's because the disciples didn't say it or because Matthew left that part out. But what's important here is that people recognize what Jesus has been doing. They recognize the importance of what Jesus has been teaching. But even with that knowledge, even with that understanding, even with all of that data that they had, what did they not identify Jesus as? Savior. Messiah. The Christ. They didn't even say that he was the conquering king who was to come. We would have expected that, wouldn't we? Because that's what everybody was disappointed about when Jesus died, was that he wasn't the conquering king. But that's not even given as an answer. 
There's an important lesson in this I'm going to hold on to for just a couple more minutes. So the public opinion part of the poll is over with. They have told Jesus, verse 14, they have told Jesus who the people say that he may be. So he turns the question to the disciples. The general population has not been with Jesus for his ministry. They've heard about him. They may have experienced something, you know, the people who were there when he fed the 5,000 and when he fed the 4,000. And there were people there when he cast the demons into the herd of pigs. And there were people who had seen and heard. But most of the information that everybody was going off of was secondhand information. The disciples, on the other hand, have been with him as he's doing this. The disciples are the ones who saw him walking on the top of the waves on the Sea of Galilee during the storm. The disciples are the ones who heard him rebuke the storm after they woke him up in a panic. (laughs) Jesus, what are you doing sleeping? We're going to die out here. What do you want me to do about it? (laughs) Peace be still. The disciples are the ones who have heard him him teach day after day after day at the Sermon on the Mount when he proclaimed the truth with such authority, when he was teaching by the Sea of Galilee with all the parables, and he was telling everybody what the kingdom of heaven was like, and the disciples said, why do you teach in parables? And he said, because most of these people don't want to listen. So I'm giving them a good story. Okay, then tell us what the parables mean. These were the people who had the truth in hand. They had heard the explanations and the deeper part of his teaching. I would guess that Jesus expected a little bit better of an answer than what do the people say about me. As is the norm for most of the rest of the early period of the church, Peter is the representative for the disciples. He makes this proclamation of faith, one of the most direct statements about the identity of Christ that we find in in all the Gospels. He says, you are the Christ, you are Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's ginormous. A couple of things I want to unpack. First, we have the word Messiah, Christ, means anointed one. It speaks about Jesus' power, his being equipped for the work that God had called him to do. The recognition that he was especially equipped and called out and set apart for this ministry that he was doing. Jesus is not the first person in history to have this title. Even King Cyrus of Persia was called Messiah. By the way, he was called Messiah by God himself in a prophecy. He was an anointed one. But Peter is recorded as using the definite article. Instead of saying, you are a Messiah, he said, you are the Messiah. Not just one of. This is the difference 
between Jesus and others who bear that title. There's a finality, a, uh, a, a precedence level to this term. And then Peter says, the son of the living God. Now there are those who look at that and say, well, that's not, that's not that big a deal because in the pagan world, lots of people were called the sons of God. It's a very common term in, in pagan belief. In fact, Hercules is the son of Zeus, right? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference here. Number one, Zeus is never called the living God. Ever, 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 ever. Uh, nor are any of the other gods. Um, in Jewish history, there are some kings who are referred to as sons of God. Um, the nation of Israel is referred to as the son of God. But by saying the son of the living God, Peter is pointing to a special relationship between Jesus and God the Father. You remember when Jesus was baptized? And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descended from heaven? And we, we hear the audible voice of God. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All right, so when David was referred to as a son of God, that never happened. When none of the prior kings of Israel had that happen. None of the prior priests or prophets had that happen. There's something more to Jesus than just being a ruler, just being an anointed one. There's something more significant. Now, before I go a whole lot further, there is a principle here that's probably the biggest thing that I want us to leave with today. I mentioned it earlier, and now I'm going to bring it out with Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't say, Good job, Peter, you figured it out. Nope. He doesn't congratulate Peter or the rest of the disciples for that matter. Because remember, Peter's just a spokesperson because he's too thick to keep his mouth shut most of the time. Right? He doesn't congratulate Peter on being smart or being able to discern something or, or being wise or, or being able to reason things out. He doesn't indicate that they figured it out because of all the clues that he had left them. He doesn't figure it out because... Or he doesn't congratulate them for figuring it out because of all the miracles and everything else. He doesn't indicate that this is theirs at all. He says it was not flesh and blood that revealed these things. 
not flesh and blood. Not flesh and blood. So what did reveal it? Who revealed it to them? How did they come to this conclusion? It was the work of God. My Father who is in heaven. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, working within them, that opened their eyes to understand who Jesus was. This is a principle that we cannot afford to lose. Remember when we were talking about the, the, the widespread public opinion poll, who do the people say that I am? The people went with the knowledge that they had. They went with the information that they had. Jesus is healing people. He's delivering people from demonic oppression. He is preaching against corruption in the government. He is preaching against corruption in the priesthood. He is doing all of this stuff. He's got to be a prophet. He has power. He has authority. He's got to be a prophet. He's got to be John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. He's got to be one of the prophets. That's what natural man's ability gives us. When we, when we share the gospel with somebody, when we share our testimony with somebody, when, when I sit and tell someone of how I used to be this, but then Jesus changed me and made me that, it's really easy for me to leave out the Jesus changed me part. So I can start with, well, I used to be this, and now I'm this. Now, I know what happened to change who I am, but the other person doesn't, right? Why would I leave that out? Because my ego says, I was smart enough to figure out the gospel. I was smart enough to choose Jesus. I was smart enough to, to walk the aisle and say the prayer and, and to, to change my life around. It was me. Now, I know all y'all in your, your churchianity, I would never do something like that. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. We all would. It's really easy for me to leave out the part that it was somebody else who changed who I am. In fact... I sent a document it's before I retired from the military. I sent a document to the association to have them browse it contained my testimony. And included in that was a, a statement where I said it was at that point that God changed who I am fundamentally. And I accepted Christ. And I got a letter back about that statement. You could probably leave out that part about God changed who you were. No, I can't. Because <laughs> that's fundamental. See, we can sometimes get puffed up about our being saved and other people not being saved. We can look down on people who don't get it. 
as being foolish or inferior somehow. We can get frustrated when we go through, if we ever go through the process of sharing the gospel with somebody, which statistics show that 90% of Christians never do, all right, if we go through the trouble of presenting the gospel to somebody and they say, well, that sounds great, but no thanks, it's not for me. We can look down at them. We can get frustrated with them. How could you not see how important this is? Well, how come the general population didn't answer that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? How come it was only the disciples who said it, and Jesus pointed out that they hadn't even figured it out? Because it's not about what we figure out. Without the work of God in their life, they can't understand who Jesus is. They can't understand the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. There will be no means of the gospel being applied to their life because it doesn't make sense. The only part of the gospel that makes sense is the part that says that we need it. (laughs) Here's a law. You've broken it. Punishment is death. We understand that. That's the only part that makes sense to natural man. That's it. Because as, as soon as I say, somebody else died that death for you. What? And not just for the sins that you committed before, not just for the times you broke the law before, but for the rest of your life. It's all covered. Huh? That doesn't make sense. Look, look. I am converted. I am a Christian. I preach the gospel. It still doesn't make sense. Not to this. makes sense here i believe it i trust in it i don't know why i don't know how one of the most important parts of sharing the gospel with people if you if you went through the share jesus without fear series that we did on sunday night if you didn't um you missed it (laughs) It's a good series. I've gone through it a number of times. I think I'm up to four times now. Um, Bill Fay, the guy who developed it, was bad. (laughs) He was bad. When I say he was bad, he was uh, a corrupted businessman who was deep in gambling, deep in prostitution, deep in with organized crime, deep in drug running. He was bad. He had ordered people's death. He was not good. He was bad. But one of the things that Bill Fay talks about when you share the gospel with people, after you you ask them the probing diagnostic questions, you know, to you, who is Jesus, and... Uh, Do you believe in heaven or hell? And if there was a heaven or hell, when you die, which one would you go to and why? (laughs) And most everybody who says, no, I don't believe there is such thing as heaven or hell. Well, if you died, where would you go? Heaven. (laughs) Okay. All right. 
And then the last question, if what you know wasn't right, would you want somebody to tell you? After you ask those diagnostic questions and you start sharing Scripture with them, and it's very basically a, a almost a, a Romans road type of sharing Scripture with them. You let them read the Scriptures, and after they come to the point where they get to the, the Scripture that says you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you ask them the question, based on everything that you've read, do you, do you wish to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? The next step is to shut up and pray. Because we have it so much in our nature to try to argue them to conversion, to try to give them more information, more information, more information. I am a child of my father. And Steph's going to dislocate her neck, nodding her head back there as I say this. Okay? I am a firm believer in the persuasive form of speech. I will wear you out telling you why I'm right and you're not. Mom's going to dislocate her neck too. <laughs> that is the nature of human beings. I'm, I am right, and I'm going to tell you why I'm right until you agree with me that I'm right. When we're sharing the gospel with people, it's not about getting them to mentally say, Oh, I see now. We've got to let God do the work. So step one in preparing to share the gospel with people, which we ought to be doing every day, okay? Step number one, what do you do? Pray. You pray that God will open up their hearts before you even get there. That he's already started plowing the ground for the seed to go into so it can root and grow. Step number one, pray. When you encounter an opportunity before you open your mouth the first time to speak to that person, what do you do? Pray. After you've shared the gospel with that person, what do you do? Pray. And let God do the work. Here's the hard part. What do you do when the person says no thanks? You walk away and you pray. Because the only person that can bring a, a, an individual to the point of understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is God Himself. Period. Told you all before, I hate the phrase, soul winning. Let's go out soul winning. If it's up to me to win souls, them people are in bad shape. No, let's go out to meet people and share Jesus with them and make disciples. Let's go, let's go do what Jesus said. You will be my witnesses. Let's go be his witnesses. Let's go testify to what we've seen. And let's watch God work. That's the principle I want you guys to get from the Caesarea Philippi Confession. Not this, Peter wasn't a genius. Peter wasn't a rocket scientist. Peter was a fisherman. Peter probably didn't have more than what we would consider to be a third or fourth grade education. 
That's obvious by what he says most of the time. And we'll get to that next week. (laughs) Because the next passage immediately after this is Jesus saying, now it's time for the Son of Man to go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the Gentiles and be crucified. And Peter steps in front of him and says, "Uh uh-uh. We've got to remember it's God who does the work. See, there's a really good thing about that. If it's God who does the work in saving people, if it's God who does the work in converting people, all he tells me to do is to tell him. How many of y'all can talk? I didn't say talk well. Or, since we're in Mississippi, I didn't say talk good. (laughs) If you can speak and you've been changed by Jesus, you can share the gospel with people. We need to start doing it. 